Right on. All right. Well, thank you, Faye. Thanks for keeping me on track. Let's start with with Jacqueline Homan. Uh, would you care to, to introduce yourself? I'm Jacqueline Homan, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jacqueline Homan. Thank you. Um, Jeremy. Hi, this is Jeremy. Uh, I'm coming at you from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Sammons one That is J-E-R-E-M-Y-S-A-M-M-O-N-S and the number one. Thank you, Jeremy. Faye Koo. Hi. Um, I am at Palestine Math because I live in Palestine, Texas, which is uh, rural East Texas. So nice to meet you. Faye Doni. Hello. Yes, my name is Faye, and you can find me uh, on Twitter at Tisdoni. That's T-I-S-D-O-N-E-Y. Thank you. Ariel. Yeah, I'm Ariel. You can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Ariel's underscore Armada. YouTube is Revolutionary Thinking. And I just changed my Instagram name to Ariel's underscore Ariel's. So that's A-R-I-E-L-S underscore A-E-R-I-A-L-S. Those are where I post my awesome drone photos. Thank you. Uh, did you say you were in L.A.? Did you mention that? Yeah. I okay. live in Los Angeles. Good. Good. Uh, and I, I live in New York, not the city, but uh, about 90 minutes north. My name is Shale, and uh, you know I produce and edit this four or five times a weekend. And uh, it's because there's nothing that will help me and everyone I care about in the world more than a basic income. And I think we all kind of feel that way. So here we are. Um, I said, uh, well, I, did we let you introduce yourself? Would you like to say anything about yourself, Jesse? Um, sure. Um, I'm coming from Hamilton, Ontario, um, the city just uh, west of Toronto. Um, and um, I'm a photographer and a classical pianist. And I'm excited to be here to talk about basic income. And you had received a basic income. I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of a pilot program. It was phenomenal. And that's what got you uh, got you involved yeah i was part of that basic income pilot i knew a little bit about basic income beforehand um it was but like mostly just like random articles on reddit and stuff like that um but no i hadn't actually like learned more about until i was on the pilot so yeah um i got about 700 dollars a month from the government until there was a new government i don't know do you know the whole story of that I think you should share the story for everyone to hear. Yeah, please. I'm sure I don't have the whole picture. Okay. Um, Yeah. So um, my personal story is that um, like before I was on basic income, I had four jobs um, and it was all gig economy jobs, like minimum wage, contract work, um, no benefits. Um, Any of these jobs could be ended at a moment's notice for no reason. Um, So no protections either. And um, it was a really stressful existence. I was probably working like 60 to 80 hours a week um, on average. Um, And it was really just very, very stressful. So then um, I heard about this basic income pilot. Like I was just, you know, on my phone, you know, browsing Facebook or whatever it was. I saw this article um, from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, saying that they were doing this basic income pilot. And, you know, if you resided in Hamilton and made less than $30,000 a year, you can apply. And I was like, hey, I reside in Hamilton. I make less than $30,000 a year. So let's do it. 
So, yeah, so I signed up and it was basically um, you had to live in either Hamilton, um, another city called Lindsay, um, which is about three hours east of Hamilton and another city called Thunder Bay, which is about 17 hours north of Hamilton. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a very big province. Canada is a very large country. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so if you had to reside in one of those cities and um, they would pick 4,500 people out of everybody who applied and those 4,500 people would get the basic income. And then the p- other people who applied would be a control group. And both groups would fill out surveys. So that's how the pilot was to work. Um, if you are a single person, you can make up to $1,400 a month on this pilot. Um, but if you were working, then that amount would be subtracted by 50 cents to the dollar. So I was working. So I made $700 a month on basic income, um, which covered my rent, which was fantastic. Um, it didn't cover a lot of anything else. Like I still had other bills to pay. Um, I have a car. I like, you know, I need to pay for food. It just covered my rent, but then it gave me that motivation to work. So then um, I started working and focusing entirely on my photography business because that's all I wanted to do, just be a full-time photographer. Um, And I was seeing my business grow. In fact, um, because I had that more time to put into my business, I was actually making more money doing photography than I was in all of those multiple gig jobs that were like super precarious. The pay was awful and I was still poor every month. And then, and, and then I was like seeing it grow and I was developing a business plan. Um, I, the pilot was supposed to be three years and I would have only been on the pilot for two out of the three years. Because at that point I would have been making enough money that I wouldn't have needed to be on the pilot anymore. Um, yeah, so that, and that pilot was put forward by a liberal government. Um, and the premier of Ontario at the time was a woman named Kathleen Wynne. And it was her pilot and her idea. Um, but then there was an election. Um, the liberal government got completely decimated. And uh, now it's a conservative government. Um, the premier of Ontario is a man named Doug Ford. You may know his brother, Rob Ford, as the crack smoking mayor of Toronto. Um, I forget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of, uh, one of Canada's proudest moments. <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, so, so, um, he's the premier of Ontario, his brother is, and his brother is just as bad as Rob. Um, he'd gone on the record. He had, um, said numerous times, I won't cancel the basic income if I were to become premier, blah, 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 blah. But of course the very first thing he did when he became premier is cancel the basic income pilot. Yeah. And I was furious. Hell hath no fury. should be. Oh, I, I can't remember being that angry in a long time. And that's where the portrait series got born was that anger. Cause I was just like, yeah. I want him to know what, what he did. I want everybody to know these people. I'm going to take their pictures. I'm going to find these people. I'm going to tell their stories. So I just started finding people. And then the stories, like it kind of grew. It started to take a life of its own. Um, like as, as the stories and the pictures start rolling in, more people wanted more photos. Um, people in Thunder Bay paid to fly me all the way up to Thunder Bay to take photos. Um, I got to go to Lindsay and take photos. So I've made all these friends in the movement and the portraits have just, um, they've taken me on some strange adventures. I've, they've, they've been exhibited all across Canada. I now give lectures in universities. Um, I, I exhibited the photos last year at the North American Basic Income Congress in New York City. Um, and I also exhibited at the Basic Income Earth Congress in India. 
Um, this year I was supposed to exhibit, um, I was going to do a new portrait series and find other basic income recipients and exhibit that in Australia. Um, that's actually where I met uh, Faye, uh, Faye Doney. Nice. Oh, I didn't know you guys were acquainted. That's cool. Yep. We, we met before and um, for, for all of you. How did you get to Australia, Faye? <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> Jet well, setting. we're not going to Australia now. No. <laughs> it would be nice if we were. Um, but yeah, I, uh, for obvious reasons, that's not happening, but it's still like now because everybody's talking about basic income, like it's such a huge and rele- relevant topic. So everybody just wants to talk to me. I'm like, I feel so popular. <laughs> um, and, and, and really good stuff too. Like um, just this week, a couple of days ago, I spoke to the Canadian Senate working group on basic income. The Senate is super excited about it and really loves the idea. So I was like, wow, I'm talking to some of the most powerful politicians in my country um who can pass bills and they want to pass this so what's it what's it like to live in a country with a functioning government i don't i've never known <laughs> well yeah i don't we're know not perfect like not i didn't say perfect is it functioning and, 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 yeah yeah we're, we're definitely <laughs> i didn't know well rob ford right. proves you're not perfect but you function because the senate's excited about something that's obviously going to help everyone it has no drawback yeah there's no drawback and and you know <laughs> is no saint but he's also no donald trump so yeah <laughs> i was um, so, so i have a quick uh, i want to interject real quick yeah uh what if we had our american politicians meet your canadian politicians through a, a, a chat group such as this one and had them talk to each other how how do you think could we make that happen <laughs> i don't know our politicians um, would probably would say, like scare the Canadian ones because they're so <laughs> barbaric. But I think <laughs> we guys have some really amazing people down there. I mean, AOC is a big hero for us up here. Um, yeah, I don't know. And you have Andrew Yang. <laughs> Man, I'm from New York. We got mixed feelings about AOC, but you know, yeah, <laughs> it's because well, she moved. She we'll moved do, from we'll being a real like better. economic progressive to being. Uh, to kind of letting go of the economic issues yeah, in favor of cultural the, the, progress, progressivism. Badrin Khan is running against AOC and she's actually for a basic income. Interesting. So that, yeah, her. that's yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm more in favor of her. I'm, I've heard of her before. I, I don't know a lot about American politics besides the, the craziness and insanity I see in the paper all the time. And it's, the a, it's an abyss. I subject it's a myself to viewing Donald Trump Twitter it, threads. It, it, it's like the people, the majority of people have really no say because the way our system is set up, you've got the electoral college and you've got, you know, these basically for-profit corporations like the DNC and, you know, the Republican equivalent, you know, that, which I, I don't know what that's called. It's called GOP. The RNC. Oh, the RNC. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it, it's like, we are, we are given a choice between turd soup and shit sandwich. Yeah. That's it. Nutshell. That I I don't know how to put it. I mean, I'll put it. I'll put it more literally. We have two corporatist parties fighting over a five percent difference in any policy. Mm-hmm. Almost nothing meaningful. It's very much right. a charade. Very and much. And then they people. they just throw the people crumbs. Right. And what, what they do is they waste our effort by pretending to represent us by by foisting us into the party that. Closely fits an identity they can flatter us into trying to, you know, involve ourselves with culture wars. Back. Yeah, yeah. Basically, we we are our coast taking these very strict sort of straightjacketing identities, uh, put in these very compromised political parties, ha- and are 
effort to make change is is ground into nothing and it's just just directed into things like phone banking where it doesn't seem to do anything but we are told it does so that's how we feel wow yeah well, uh, that's the corporations democratic it's it's not democratic because the corporations can literally buy both sides because there's only two candidates so if yeah. they really care about a, uh, an issue, they just go and contribute to both of them. And but unlike Canada, we have virtually no limits in, in, in like corp in donations to private or, or corporate. So it's basically just candidates. like a big cesspool of corruption and lies and deceit. We also have almost no checks on what our media can call true, which yeah. misinforms everyone in mass strategically to, to preserve yeah. the status quo. It's a nightmare from which Fox there is no escape. Uh, don't ever yeah. come here. Don't think about us. Even knowing about us should make you tired. <laughs> the truth be told, especially with the pandemic, I thought the United States is a country I really don't want to visit right now, even though there's so many nice people there. But, but we're, we're lost. Forget about us. Save yourself. Oh, well, actually, like, I wouldn't mind to come to Canada as a refugee. And I'm thinking that, like, we, we, that's we the have thing. Please start taking us. Immigration yes. policies. <laughs> My boyfriend is a recent Canadian citizen from America. He's only been a Canadian citizen for like three or four years now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I, I would like all the time I went to Vancouver, everybody on the West Coast goes to Vancouver. I mean, I, I enjoyed my stay. I mean, Vancouver's it's beautiful. pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like it's so, it's so walkable. American cities, well, at least here in LA, like we're not walkable. Over there, it's like you can walk. Over here, it's like there, there's like it's it's like this urban sprawl is just like ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And I think it would depend on what Canadian city, because like Hamilton is kind of walkable, but it's very much a car friendly city. Whereas Toronto, you don't want try, you don't want to drive in Toronto. I also found Vancouver to be walkable. So is Montreal. Yeah, but but I think what you said about um your jobs process and your economy, I guess it's the same in both countries because yeah. you said there are these like gig jobs and you have to string them on together and then like they they could they could just get rid of you without any warning mm-hmm. and that that kind of sounds like our right to work. It's just like oh, I just I just decided that I don't like the pants you are wearing today, so bye. I'm not working in the job anymore. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or they can just say. We decide not to renew your contract. Your last day is next week. Goodbye. Um, yeah. uh, what Ariel was referencing, uh, we have in this country things called misleadingly right to work laws, and they're actually laws that protect the employer's right to fire an employee pretty much for no reason whenever they feel like it. Well, there, there was something I wanted to add about the gig economy thing because I ran into this my, myself, and, and that is wage theft is a huge, huge problem. I mean, you don't literally have the protections if you get stiff after working, you know, um, if, if the, the person you're working for on the, you know, in the gig economy decides to stiff you, your only recourse is to hire a lawyer. And if that employer or what they call a client is located out of state, you have to incur all these legal fees that you probably can't afford to hire a lawyer that is able to, you know, handle an interstate lawsuit. And it, it doesn't even, you're not even covered under the same uh, wage protection laws that a regular worker is because you'd have to sue that that business owner or that employer who could very easily turn around, say, well, I'm going to file bankruptcy and then do so. And then you're just an unsecured creditor 
And it's like, yeah, well, good luck ever getting your money you're owed. Just, you know, pick a number. Wow. And that's one of the things that a lot of people, you know, don't talk about when they talk about the gig economy is, you know, the, the, the you know, huge, huge problem of wage theft. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah, being able to really gain, get away with exploiting your employees. Uh, yep. Uh, so, so Jesse, um, did, did, did you like, uh, with all these gig jobs and stuff, did you have to secure, did, did you have a degree or not? Because everybody tells us that that makes a difference, but I see that it's like, whether you have a degree or not, it's like you still struggle and you go through a hard time. Yeah, I have, um, I have like 99.9% of a bachelor's degree and, um, and a whole bunch of other um, like qualifications and college stuff and work experience that it makes me a very qualified, educated person with a really nice resume. And despite that, I've still been real. I've still always struggled to find jobs. And and I'm I'm just one of many people I know. I have friends who have master's degrees and and bachelor degrees who are working as baristas in coffee shops and bartenders because that's the only jobs that there are. Or yeah. mm. wage. It's that's, like that's the standard job for a master degree holder. I'm pretty sure where we're the most yeah. educated and, and poorest generation. And why would you try and exploit and, and gut out an entire generation of people? Like, You're right, right. It just seems so backwards for a society. I, a like, yeah, this is why one of the big reasons why, like, economically, I support basic income because I see it as an investment in humanity. It isn't just, you know, free handout from the government. It's investing in people. If you have money to be able to build the economy or go back to school or do what I did, build, build my business, then you will. People want to do more with, with their life than just sit around playing video games all day. You'll, you'll get very bored very quickly. Um, yeah. So Jesse, right. as I understand it, you had a chance to testify before your Congress pretty recently, right? Yeah, it was just a few days ago. So that was the the Canadian Senate, which I, I, I guess is the equivalent of your Congress. And um, mm-hmm. that's great. There, Can you tell us more about what that's like? Because Angelo just joined us, and he's part of a, a an effort on our part to go to Congress on our side. And so if you could tell us about, you know, what was the procedure like? How did you get invited? And then how did you, like, you know, put, pull together information? And how long did they give you to speak? Or how did it work? We'd love to hear about how it works for you. Yeah. So um, so in, in our government, um, our members of parliament are elected, um, but then the members of the Senate are appointed by the prime minister. Um, so, so they're an appointed government, governing body that acts as the second body to, to pass bills um, and, and debate that. So, um, and the, the Senate can also bring bills to the House. Um, so a couple months ago, um, a group of senators, uh, 50 of them, signed um, an open letter to the prime minister calling for basic income. And I think this just happened like just at the beginning or just before the pandemic hit and and everything was shut down. Um, And then in Canada, like um, with the pandemic, um, like what Canada has done is proposed um, what's called the Canada Economic Relief Benefit. And it is kind of like a basic income. Um, Every single person who had lost their job due to COVID-19 was able to receive um, $2,000 a month um, from the government for that. Um, so the, but there, like, there's still people falling through the cracks. And so, um, oh, it's, it's just a big topic in politics right now. 
And of those 50 senators, they've they've created a working group to further um, explore a call for basic income. And the senator who led it, um, a woman named Kim Pate, um, announced an inquiry into looking into this bill. So she gave a speech at the Senate House and said, we're going to look into this. Um, Around the time that she did that, um, I did a webinar um, that was hosted by um, an organization called the Tamarack Institute. And um, it was a Canada-wide webinar. And um, one of Kim Pate's staffers happened to watch the webinar and said to the senator, you need to talk to Jessie. She has these these photos. She has this story. Just get her on. So then I got um, I got a phone call from her and she invited me to come to this working group meeting. And it's all been doing online because of because of the circumstances. Um, So it was like this online virtual meeting. Um, It was only an hour. Um, I probably talked for about 20 minutes. I told my story very similar to like what I've told you guys. I showed the photos um, to the senators and I treat the photos as though they're public domain. Like anybody can can share the photos, can view them, can publish them, use them however you want. Everything is legal. Um, The people in the photos have consented and signed release forms. So, so I said that to the senators and gave them the photos and they, the feedback was excellent. They said that they found my presentation inspiring. Um, now they're wanting to talk about um, getting these photos into different Canadian art galleries and talking about publishing opportunities and stuff. So I'm really excited as to what that'll look like. Um, but yeah, it was um, the largest and most powerful governing body I've talked to up to this point. And I've been very privilege to be able to talk to some major Canadian leaders um, in politics. And so, yeah, it was, it was a cool experience. And afterwards I was like, wow, don't talk to the Senate every day. <laughs> so what, what kind of advice would you give us Americans uh, from your experience with talking to people um, like on the ground level and then talking to, you know, people who can make the changes, like what kind of advice should we be following? Um, like, uh, in, with the basic income movement, like we have so many resources. Um, like I know in Canada, there are like, um, there's so many basic income, like there's a basic income Canada network, there's UBI works, there's basic income networks. Like in, in my city of Hamilton, I'm on the steering committee for the Hamilton basic income group. And I'm actively involved with the Ontario basic income group. Um, so I know, I know in the United States, you have to have similar networks and groups. You have um, USBIG, um, you have um, like Andrew Yang's Humanity Forward, and even just what you are all doing in the Yang Gang. Um, so like you guys have support. And I think I know a big problem that I see in Canada is oftentimes um, we seem to be not, sometimes we're not as good at being united as we can be. We all know each other. We all get along, but we, sometimes people will like, you know, try and end up overlapping on projects and ideas instead of keeping a united front. Um, And, but then with all those resources comes like, you know, like the knowledge, the statistics, um, the numbers that show that this works and that this is a good idea. But then also what we need is stories. And I know that that's my unique place in the basic income movement is that I have this resource, these stories um, that, that show that like the Ontario basic income pilot was more than just 4,500 people getting $1,400 a month. It was this person who has a name, who has a spouse, who has a child, who wants to go back to school, has a job, has dreams. 
Um, and I think those stories also make an impact because it, oh. it's, you know, it's one thing to read an economical graphic chart on why basic income works, but it's another thing to convince an average person on the street. And right. what that is the, the power. Uh, of Jesse, uh, we have quite a number of like conservatives here in this country and Republicans very in favor of a universal basic income because it supports, like you said, entrepreneurship and business growth. But sometimes it's hard to where, where we have these diehard dinosaurs in, in, in our halls of power to, to get them out of that headspace of like, like a handout. So, so I think the best thing to do when, when coming at the conservatives from their role viewpoint is to flip this thing on its head and say, if you don't support this, you don't support autonomy and people having their own business and growth and entrepreneurship. So what what do you think? Have, have, have you tried going about it to this new conservative people that have been elected like that? Yeah, because like um, there that sort of conservative feel does exist and is very much alive and well in certain parts of Canada. Um, like the province of Alberta, for instance, is um, notoriously conservative, um, often to their own detriment. Um, and That's I where Jordan Peterson was from, huh? Um, Jordan Peterson's from Toronto. Well, he's, he's from the, he's a professor at the University of Toronto. So he's in a more liberal part of Canada, but, um, like a lot of people in Alberta love Jordan Peterson. In fact, I people who like him and I don't. No, I don't care for that guy. Yeah. I don't care for Mr. Peterson. I don't care for Mr. Peterson. (laughs) But um, neither do I. <laughs> I do not like him with green eggs and ham. I do not like him, Sam. I am. Yeah. So he's a he's a strange, strange character. But like there is this that that same conservative flavor exists. Like even my hometown where I grew up, like where I grew up, um, a lot of people live by that. Like if you are in poverty, it is entirely your fault. It is a reflection of you and your character. If you are rich, it is because you worked hard and you deserve it. Yeah. You got Peterson is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Bucko. Bucko. Like, like, yeah. He, he, it's it's funny that this Canadian is like selling the fake American dream. Right. Exactly. (laughs) A fake American for a fake dream. I, I, I thought he, he kind of, I, I, what, when, when the SJW stuff was going a little too far, I saw him as like a counterweight, but now I just think he's out of his mind and he just sucks because I remember hearing, hearing him say, that like something about negotiating power. He said, yeah, it's about negotiating power. And if you just don't have negotiating power, then you're just a slave and you should just be okay with that. That's okay. And it's like, you asshole. What, what okay. is that? Like, like that's why sorry. I don't like one must imagine Sisyphus happy. Like that's just bullshit. Yeah. What yeah that's, that's a strange thought. Yeah. It's not from- the thing is, is that a lot of people like George not Peterson, they confuse collective responsibility with personal responsibility. And it's like, it's hard to nail that fine line, but it's like at some point, you know, it's, yes, we do have to talk about personal responsibility, but we also have to talk about collective responsibility too. And when we're supporting an entire structure that, you know, basically rigs the game and forces you to play 400 rounds of Monopoly 
where you're not allowed to even play. And then for, an, for another 50 rounds, you're finally allowed to play, but you're forced to play on behalf of the other game players that you're playing against, you know, it, you're still it, not getting 200 for pass and go. Yes. You, and you're not getting, you forget getting 200 for pass and go. I mean, that doesn't even exist. I mean, that basically describes. The, basically it's, it's a rigged game of monopoly. So, yeah. so that's, that's a rigged system. So, so let me ask, did the companies that got the bailouts, did they have to clean up their room first? I think their room was pretty damn dirty. It, I, I think I think they made the room a pigsty and never cleaned it up and got the money. So so don't give me that crap, Mr. Peterson. Right? Yeah, and and I just don't like like it it, it isn't even statistically true. Like like the, there have been studies that have been done that have like looked over like the 50 years plus of basic income pilots that have taken place all over the world. And it asked the exact question, like, if, you know, we give people a basic income, are they going to work less or more or what's going to happen? Right. Overwhelmingly. It's like, how are we supposed to clean up our own room without being able to afford any cleaning supplies? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's an up, idiot. How are you supposed to clean up your own room when what would have been a $5,000 roof repair seven years ago is now a $55,000 roof replacement and all of your stuff is crammed downstairs into the first floor because it rains upstairs in your bedroom and in your other upstairs rooms. The thing people don't understand is that like wealth, poverty or negative wealth is also cumulative. And there's a compound penalty with being poor. The longer that poverty remains unaddressed or even worse, addressed improperly, which that's even worse than doing nothing. Um, the more the problem compounds, it doesn't just you know, resolve itself. And for people to think that it does, well, they're engaging on a fool's errand. Well, uh, I mean, okay, so I heard this... Uh example at one point in time or comparison and it was talking about like okay so you have this lawnmower right and the blades on it are super dull so it's taking you four hours to mow this lawn but if you stopped and took like just like 10 minutes to sharpen the blades you would be done in one hour right or or just a fraction of the time it's like having a car that you run into the ground versus uh doing upkeep right and, and so, like, we don't have money to do the repairs, uh, but also we're like, no, no, I don't even have time to sharpen the blade. It's going to take four hours to do this, right? And so we don't even, like, take time to sharpen the blade, let alone, you know, have time to do this maintenance so that it lasts longer and is more efficient, right? We don't optimize anything we do. It's just, uh, that's what the UBI would be doing, though, you know? <laughs> so, so there was, um, in... In, in Canada, um, back in the 1970s, there was another basic income pilot that took place in the province of Manitoba, um, and it was called Mincom, um, and they chose one village, it was called Dauphin, um, and they gave everybody in that village a basic income. Um, and same thing happened in Ontario as it did in Manitoba. The pilot got canceled, and then all the data got put into boxes and left in a storage unit for 40 years. Um, about 10 years ago, there was a woman named Evelyn Forger, and she's an economist in, at the University of Winnipeg, and she said, let's see what the what this data says. So she got into that storage unit, dug out all the boxes, found all this data, and showed that like um, high school dropouts went down, um, hospital visits went down, 
crime went down and the overall economy of the town improved. Um, and they did this documentary about it. Um, and, and the documentary is only like maybe two or three years old. It's really good. It's just called the Manitoba story. And it's only like 20 minutes long. I highly recommend it. And in that documentary, they interview one guy and this interview really sticks out to me. So this guy, um, he said that when they, they like 40 years ago, when they were on basic income, they used the money and bought a truck for the farm. And because they bought that truck, they could transport more livestock and more, more um, like, you know, everything, um, harvest and everything. And so then because they were able to transport more livestock, they were able to make more money and then they could buy more and they could make. Uh, and so then the interview ends with this guy standing in a large scale industrial farming operation that his family has been now now runs for generations and the only reason that he has that farming operation is because they got that free handout from the government and he bought a truck. Um, and, and just thinking of like the millions of dollars that that farming operation is worth and and the improvement to the economy of that community. Like it's just it's just the proof's in the pudding. Well, right, right. And Jesse, you're you're dealing with facts, right? Mm-hmm. What, what do conservatives love to always tell uh, liberals sometimes and progressives, and I lean conservative. They say, you know, the big one is, you know what? Facts don't care about your feelings. These are the facts, and these. No, no, no. no. In this case, it's their feelings. Yeah. That like this is a handout that doesn't care about the facts. So we have to go to some of these people who are against it and tell them that facts don't care about your feelings. This works. And, and like I, I was thinking about it, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, a person on my Facebook who was actually honestly my childhood bully started commenting and being like, you know, I don't believe in basic income and you shouldn't be so ungrateful and get your free handouts from the government. You're so lazy and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there being like, well, you know, you're only able to be a stay at home mom running your MLM scheme because, you know, you have a husband that's paying for all your stuff. And is that not a form of basic income? Also, you're getting the Canada Child Benefit. Also, you're getting the Canada Economic Relief Benefit. So, like the hypocrisy is not off not, the charts, off the charts, not missed. And I am noting it in, in taking notes and I might even send her this video after this. Um, but then also like. Um, just the fact that like, you know, you you don't consider the privileges that you are living with to be a basic income because you are getting these things and, and, and you are part of this program. That sounds like a real Karen. Yeah. I don't know. The the military also kind of has its own basic income back. Like, you know, even for tenants. Uh, so my ex stepdad, uh, had been in the military and, uh, through his benefits, I was able to go to school without having to pay for it. I was trying to write out the recession. Uh, that didn't like, it's still here, <laughs> but like, um, I also received, uh, money, uh, monthly to, and it provided a job. It was like a basic income, uh, plus benefits of like all this support. And, and it was because he had participated um, you know, and I don't even think about this time in my life because I didn't even think about it as a basic income. Right. I was just like, oh, this is really helpful. Um, but, you know, uh, people who go to the military, you know, sometimes it's so they can afford schooling, you know, but like there's other benefits that happen monthly. You know, like if you got injured, here's a check for you. You know, this way you can survive. But we don't extend that to civilians. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like dental care. I mean, you know, dental care, that's a big thing. I, I know a lot of people in my neck of the woods, 
that for lack of any other opportunity available to them, uh, if they were able to pass the physical to, to get accepted into the military, their, their main reason was this is the only way I'm ever going to have health and dental benefits and, you know, and a chance to maybe, you know, get training to have a job. So it was all that. It was all that. It was the income plus, you know, getting a set of dentures by the time they were 20. And, yeah. and that's crazy. And and like I, I'm, I know I'm as a Canadian, I'm very, very lucky we have a free health care system, um, but our free health care doesn't involve like eye care or dental care either. We have to pay for that or have benefits on our job, nor does it involve pharmacare. So we have to if we need prescription drugs for whatever reason, we have to pay for that out of pocket. Um, Who but, decided at some points that the eyes are not important and teeth are not important? Like it's like automatic, just randomly pick two pieces of your body and say, we're not going to take care of those. It's very yeah, like, you know, we're, we're dealt the bad hands because we have to wear glasses. So now we're, we're just, we're just, you know, the alternative is to be blind. Like that doesn't well, help. Yeah, I, I was watching this video and it was like subtle signs that people have wealth. And one of the subtle signs was that they have nice teeth because that's one of the first things they do with their wealth. And I'm like, really? So your teeth are a sign of wealth? It and like, sense. that's true. It makes sense though. Like braces cost a lot of money. Like, like you know, if, if your parents can afford to shell out the five to ten thousand dollars for braces when you're in when you're in high school, then that's great. But if they can't, then you have bad teeth. I had braces in like middle school. Oh, Same here. I hated them. But, like I. Yeah, me too. Like I, I lived a very privileged life because my parents could afford braces. So I well, want to say right. that there's something about our our two countries that do we do have in common because we have an a joint ancestry from the um, the uh, colonial period, right? And so we've inherited a lot of these systems from the British, like our the way that we run our bureaucracy, the one that the way that we run our money. If you take a look at the current account balances of uh, various countries across the entire you know uh, planet you will see that primarily the British system of, of money and and governance is creating um, like current account balances that are very very negative right especially the United States we're like in the trillions of negatives um, whereas and and everybody else who's on the positive side they're like how do they live like that like they have a whole different system of thinking about money. Like so in China, Taiwan, the Eastern Tigers or whatever, um, certain other countries um, are like, you know, uh, they have to keep a current account balance that is that is positive. Wow. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah. the, so it's like, how do they both uh, survive in this world? Because they have this, uh, we've, we've developed the same systems of thinking because of our British and French uh, possibly and Spanish, you know, the European heritage that we've received colonialism. And so now I see that you guys are also like participating in the maybe defund the police um, yes. activities. And I'm wondering, um, how did Hamilton decide that they wanted to align themselves with, you know, and, and try to, uh, some of the people in Hamilton are now working on this, including yourself, right? Yes. Um, yes. And um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping abreast of everything. And I've signed um, the defund the police call in support of with humans of basic income. Like, Hamilton, um, for being a city of half a million people, is an extremely small town. Like, everybody knows everyone in this city and all of the advocates and activists. We all know each other and we all work together on stuff. Um, the, the, the history of the relationship with the police and certain populations in Hamilton is not good. Um, specifically, um, 
yes, with racialized communities, there is a history of racism um, with the police, but then the other community that's also been disproportionately targeted specifically in Hamilton is the LGBTQ community. So um, the big thing that happened um, actually took place last year, uh, around this time last year, um, there was a pride festival. And um, so there was a big festival at the the big park in Hamilton. um, And, you know, there's music and people out and everything celebrating pride. Um, Before the festival, the organizers had warned the police saying that there is a very large possibility that there's going to be protesters and there's going to be people who are going to turn up. Um, And in the weeks leading up to Pride and in the weeks following Pride, there have been presence of um, people, um, the people who are part of the Yellow Vest movement, which is very anti-immigration, very racist, very anti-LGBTQ, and other like neo-Nazis protesting in front of City Hall. This is happening in Hamilton, took place in Hamilton. So, of course, those people showed up as well as some very strong fundamentalist Christians showed up. And then in response, there were people who had come to Pride in support of the Pride attenders. So they put up a big black cloth wall and tried to get these people out and, and, and alienate them. This erupted in violence. A lot of people got injured. Um, the police took way too long to respond. Like the police just weren't there. And in fact, there is like records of people calling 911 and the police saying, well, you didn't want us at Pride anyway, so what are we doing here? Like that happened. So 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 then and then in the aftermath, um, only one of the people who was part of that yellow vesters neo-Nazi group was arrested. Well, three to four people who were defending the the Pride goers were arrested. And in fact, the one that was arrested wasn't even at the event at all. So so the the agitation and relationship between the police and LGBTQ community and racialized populations is tense and has been tense all year. And so then the police report came out with this last week. And this happened at the same time as George Floyd happening in the United States and Black Black Lives Matter and everything. So there have been protests every day. Um, A lot of Black Lives Matter, a lot of solidarity protests, but um, the so far they've been peaceful like overt violence hasn't happened. Um, And I remain cautiously optimistic just because I I know my community that it can stay like that. But with the lack of accountability with the police in in what happened at Pride last year, um, like the um, the mayor of Hamilton is extremely unpopular right now because of that. The police are extremely unpopular. So it's just tense. It, It feels like a cold war right now. And, and we're just, I'm just kind of like, I wonder if the shoe's going to drop or not. Um, I think so, there's some kind of like worldwide awakening going yeah, on here. Yeah. with like basic income and police. So uh, I'm, I'm interested that it's not just the United States. Everybody across all countries are just saying like, what the hell has been going on? Like, I, I, I think, I think it's less to do with countries than it is to do with generations. Yeah. And just the younger generation is like, what is this bullshit? What kind of like economy have we been given that everything is just like stress and anxiety and worrying? We have all this technology and, uh, uh, you know, computers and smartphones. You're telling me this is the best we can do? Yeah, and it's so broken, too. Like, what what kind of world do we want to live in where we have, like, abundance and technology and everything that's hoarded by a few people at the top while the rest of us suffer? 
and where we have like like the the lowest and most vulnerable of our po populations are are the ones that are racialized um like like it's just so wrong it's ass backwards yes uh angela did you have something to say there's a uh, yeah i was just um curious is the canadian police militari militarized the way the american police is um yes so um like like hamilton um the hamilton police service owns armored vehicles um, they do have them. Um, I have never seen them be used, but we do have, they have at least two or three. So it is well militarized and has a budget depending on which police service it is. And then it also depends on the population. So like, um, racism against indigenous people is very much alive and well here in, in Canada. And that's a huge thing. In fact, like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, it was originally created as a policing force against indigenous people. So like the history of violence against indigenous populations is huge and even goes all the way up to today. Um, so like the, there's been um, like a proposed pipeline that's wanting to be built in uh, over in sacred indigenous territory. And so these chiefs and these tribes are saying, hell no, you cannot do this. You can't do this. This is wrong. Um, and, and they're getting arrested um, and they're they're getting like like they're having their rights taken away. And, and it's really you don't really know exactly what's happening because we're talking about like the woods in northern British Columbia. So so like that happens. Um, and, and it is like this sort of justified violence, I guess, in the name of progress. But it's a pipeline. Um, and it's not the first time that this has happened. Like in um, 1990, there was a similar thing where um, a company wanted to build a golf course over an, a Mohawk burial ground. And that caused a huge amount of violence and a lot of fighting and and like an actual standoff against like with indigenous people and, and the police. Oh, um, one of our members was, was actually there. Okay. There. You're at the Oka. I was at Ganasataki. Holy. I was at Caledonia. Yeah. I know who Gary McHale is. Yeah. So, well, so. Yeah. And I, I remember. <laughs> you know, everybody says that Canada is a peaceful, loving, polite country and we're all great and wonderful. But no, we have a huge history of racism and violence. And it's, it's, it's even beyond the racism because what we're dealing with, with the Haudenosaunee, which is the Six Nation Iroquois, yeah. which yeah. Mohawk. Okay. Um, is this this fact that there's there's international treaty law involved, which which compounds things even more because most people do not understand the concept of uh, diminished sovereignty, what it means to be a diminished sovereign. So it it was a whole bunch of all that wrapped up with it. But uh, yes, um, I was there. I'm proud to say that I stood. That's amazing. With the with the Mohawk warriors, I am proud to say that I stood more than once. Thank you. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was very, very much yeah. there. And, and Gary McHale, you know, he was one of the Nazis that you were when you were talking about not neo Nazis and and white nationalists. Gary McHale was one of the ones who was very problematic in Caledonia, which is one of the more recent incidents that occurred over, a, you know, the illegal sale of Mohawk land to a developer, a real estate developer. And it, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't come, it didn't work out well, you know, that the people got angry. 
with just cause. And then Gary McHale shows up with, with, you know, his, his crew and decided he was going to go try to pick a fight, you know, <laughs> wrong move. <laughs> you don't do that when you've got, when you've got, um, when you've, when you've got people who are willing to stand their ground and who have at least 600 years experience of standing their ground very effectively, <laughs> who are willing to meet you at the barricades yeah. along with their allies, you know? <laughs> That's awesome and incredible because, like, at, like reform needs to happen. Um, like, in, like most reserves in Canada don't have access to clean drinking water. Right, right. Atawapiskat is a prime example. Atawapiskat. Um, yeah. Even, even just, um, just like within an hour of where I live, the Six Nations on the Grand River, no drinking water. Tainanega in Belleville, no drinking water. Um, and, and if you go up north in like Ottawapiskat, um, like that area, um, like the cost of food is astronomical. Like you're looking at $40 for a bushel of apples. Because it has to be flown in. They're rotten. Yeah, because it has to be flown in. And, and that sort of income disparity um, is um, horrifying. And like I say this because um, I grew up um, like I grew up in a small town in Ontario called Hanover. And right next to Hanover was a village called Walkerton. In 2000, um, thanks to the cuts in the provincial government by the conservative premier at the time, Mike Harris, um, E. coli got in the water at the in the wells of Walkerton, and and there were enough cuts that there was enough oversight in the water treatment plant that it it poisoned the entire town, um, with thousands of people getting sick and people dying. Um, people I knew, and this was an international tragedy. If you Google Walkerton, you will get the whole history of it. Um, and, and this was seen as this horrible, terrible, terrible thing. And I'm thinking, yes, it is a horrible, terrible, terrible thing. There, there are people I know who have lifelong illnesses because of what happened there. But in the same breath, there are also reserves and places that ha- in Canada that haven't had clean drinking water for decades and decades and decades. And we're Stony Creek, the Dudley George. Remember Dudley George? Yes. Uh, Stony Creek is like 20 minutes away from where I live. Yeah. That was that, you know, and that that was another situation um, that was allowed to to fester and resulted in in um, basically the 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 place being made uninhabitable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've gone on so many rabbit holes in this discussion so far, but it does all kind of, like like there's a beautiful intersectionality to all these. Mm. Things, and I think basic income is one of those beautiful intersectionalities. Right. Well, I think I think it's because basic income gives the power back into the hands of the people rather than the corporations and the, you know, leaders, quote unquote, that they just don't like that. You know, even though all the evidence points to the happiness and the mental health and the productivity, I think I think it boils down that the leaders and the corporations, they have such a good thing going on. They've, they've had this incestuous relationship for years and years and years that giving this kind of power to people is just like, they're scared. I don't know. Yep. Jesse, I'd like to ask you a favor since you live in Hamilton, which is not too far from the six. Yep. Um, you know, I was kind of informally, informally kind of adopted because I stood with the Mohawk warriors. I'd like you to tell Donna Palace was one of the clan mothers she was really you know she's actually 
<laughs> my my family is not like blood family, but you know, tell her from Jacqueline because I've not been able to get back up across the big water for several years since I got sick and then lost our vehicle to repossession. Please tell her that Jacqueline from Erie County, Pennsylvania, okay, okay, says Gunalunkwa, and I miss you. Gunalunkwa okay. means I love you and care for you in yeah. Mohawk. Wonderful. Oh, that's for me. I will, I will do my best. I don't know if I'm going to get to see my adopted family before I die. Yeah. And I would and like. With the border being closed and I don't know when, like, I know the United States is wanting the border open. At least Trump is saying that. And Canada doesn't want the border open. Canadians are not happy. Uh, don't open the border for us. We're <laughs> no, let us in. No, don't we let us in. We cannot be trusted at this point as a group. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, that's just that's okay. Yeah, I, I can absolutely do that for you, Jacqueline. Um, if you can um, send me an email and um, give me the contact information of this of, of Donna, I can. I would love to do that. For you. I don't know if Donna's on the internet, but you can find her at the six. She's one of the clan mothers. Okay, I'll. I'll. I. I. I know. I know some people in in the six that that might be able to help me find her. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Tell her we're trying that I, I've been down here trying to get rid of the Ota Aswagayo who's in the uh, White House. That's Mohawk for a big bird bird full of shit, too full of shit. Why? <laughs> hey, you won't learn that on the guided tour. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do say like there are people who would have voted for Donald Trump in Canada. Like I know. I know because they wouldn't have known. Our countries are very similar. We have we have some differences, but we have a lot in we have a lot in common. What I I have to say, yeah. Oh, please go ahead, ahead, Faye. Faye. (laughs) No, I I insist the other Faye speaks. Well, okay. Well, what I find uh, like interesting is for the first time ever, we have an ability to talk to people on a person-to-person level in other countries uh, and not through the people in charge, right? We have so much more fluidity to um, communicate uh, and actually just connect our networks uh, in a capacity only available to us because of the internet. And now that we have video calls, you know, you can see facial expressions. You can actually like, I mean, I dated a guy one time who stuttered and he couldn't even talk to somebody unless it was face to face. Right. And so like that was, um, such a beautiful invention to help uh, progress our countries, right? But um, we also need to learn from other countries. I mean, I feel like we need people from Norway on our like thing, right? They figured out a few things. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And, and it's well. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Absolutely. I have some pretty good friends over there. Yeah. I mean, we have this cultural arrogance here where we really feel like we don't need to learn from anyone or anything. And it's a hard thing to cut through. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, well, I mean, if it's any consolation, my parents are from Iran, so there's that. Nice. Um, yeah, because, like, um, like with, with COVID, like, really, I imagine the only person who's happy about COVID is the CEO of Zoom, because, like, we're all doing this, and if we didn't have this technology, and, and disasters, I guess, breed a technology and a need for technology, so, so like, video calling and working from remote has suddenly got a lot easier, um, 
but it was really cool. Like when I went to India last year, I was one of three Canadians at the entire conference. Um, like there were people there from everywhere. Um, people from Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, um, United States. There were so many people. And, and, and it's really cool because like I, I left that conference, like, um, some of my best learning wasn't what, like, you know, the, the talks and everything were super inspiring and super amazing and cool to hear all this research, but it was like the times after and in between, like, you know, having lunch with these people from a different, from different countries and, you know, going out for drinks after, after the event and, and, you know, all this, like, there was like this deep sense of camaraderie and um really cool to see it from like just all over the world um like there, i remember like one of the very last nights of the congress like we we had like a big dinner together and then afterwards like maybe about a dozen of us had had a little bit too much to drink <laughs> and and we were all like singing songs from our countries like like folk songs from our countries um I don't know if you would ever understand this reference, but for Canada, I sang a song by the Tragically Hip because they are our our song our, our songwriters of our country. So, um, but yeah, it was just like fun and cool to see that and and see and see that we can learn from each other and and be in this movement together and have so many different cultures. Like it was just so cool. I've never had an experience like that ever before. Um, well, now that I, we had this George Floyd thing, we, we're connecting with people in other countries all over the world. So we finally have something to resonate with on a capacity that needs to launch us forward as a like global awakening, you know, as was said earlier, you know. Um, and so, but honestly, I hate to say it, we need to tack UBI to this movement somehow. The Black Lives Matter, you know, the, it, it, it's it's affecting them. They need it, you know, but like to connect the two is difficult to really do in my opinion. Except that Martin Luther King had already done it. Right. He basically did it (laughs) 50 years ago. And, and we're again, like have to rediscover everything. Like we don't remember our history, you know, it's like, um, it's already been done and we didn't, we need to like go right back to it right now and pick it up as if it was yesterday, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. over here in the United States, we have like a media industrial complex that like wants to block out the voices of reason and replace it with the voices of bullshit because Yang um was just deliberately, you could see blocked, no airtime. No, it it's like, and, and you know what else is important about having money? Having money is a lot more about like um, um, being to, able to afford stuff. It's being able to have a voice. Now that like in this country, money is considered speech. When you take away someone's money, you take away their seat at the table. And there's an old saying that like, when you don't have a seat at the table, you are on the menu. Yeah. So, so our lives uh, of, of our generation have been put on the menu because they've, they've taken away like our liquidity and all of this and it has to stop, you know, but let's, th- let's go back to why we even need the money in the first place. I mean, we were, we're talking about a colonial history where some people who used money met up with people who didn't really use a whole lot of money. I mean, there was, there was, they were very self-sufficient um, in within their groups, right? 
So, and everybody in their groups kind of uh, had certain had certain societal norms that did not involve the exchanging of trinkets or things in order to, you know, present yourself as a worthy person. I mean, you were you you were a mom or you were you know the child of somebody. Like these were your relationships with within the community. And so I'm wondering, like, how we can, um, you know, get back to like <laughs> a normal relationship uh, type of thing, you know, with your own, within your community and representing yourself as being a worthy person because of your relationship to your community rather than, you know, like, this is my job, my function in the community for which I get paid. And if I don't have a function, then I'm no longer a worthy person. Um, and we have that in common, like all of us who have gone through that, all of the countries that went through the whole colonizing, you know, we have it in common. And it's it's a vast <laughs> amount of uh, land ge geographically where, you know, that have been affected by colonialism. I mean, it's in South America, it's in North America, it's in Africa, it's in Asia, it's everywhere. So I don't know if there's even places in Europe, but, you know, it feels like it's it's sort of that that whole system was taken out into so so many parts of the world and we really haven't finished dealing with it i i feel like we we have like this opportunity to build a better world here and and maybe like covid i think exposed the flaws in the society and we've seen these flaws we've known about them hell we've lived through them but now like they're just laid bare for everybody to see and and if we if we if we get out of the COVID era and the world is before, then we've been backwards. So I I found this quote earlier. I'm gonna try and pull it up real quick. Um, and essentially, I mean, it was in the movie called uh, Ever After, and it was talking about how uh, if you suffer your people to be ill-educated and their manners corrupted from infancy and then punish them for uh, those crimes to which their first educa uh, education disposed them. Then what else is to be concluded, uh, Sire, but that you're, you first make thieves and then punish them. And I think that's essentially also what's been happening in our country too, is like we, we make thieves because like we start from infancy and we haven't really uh, corrected this yeah. problem. So, so that quote and the heart of that quote comes from St. Thomas More, um, who wrote Utopia. And, and he said the exact thing so that he's credited as one of the fathers of basic income in the 1500s, because in his book, he's saying, why are you punishing these people for stealing bread? Like you, you made the infrastructure, which has forced this person to steal bread. Why not just give them money? I want to comment on um need to live. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. You uh, you froze for a second. And I think I uh, I started speaking. Are you still having Are you still frozen? Yes. I think Jesse's frozen. Well, what were you going to say unless you're asking her a question? Oh, uh, I wanted to hear, but um well, I was going to say I was going to say, you know, this is a function of our legacy media which is owned by the same like five companies that tell the same story together. When you saw the, the protests start, you saw a lot of, um, you know, people out there, of course, for systemic racism, for for uh, an end to police brutality, racist police practices. Uh, but they were also there for broader systemic inequality, including economic inequality. And that was reported on at the beginning of the protests. And now the legacy media companies have gotten together and decided they're only going to to, to report on like the 
um, the racial aspect of, of the protest, essentially, which is probably going to be effective. Historically, it has been. That's what they do in this country. It's one of the ways they're able to stop economic progress from ever happening by um, by, by taking other worthy causes and then conflating it with, with what was the cry for economic progress, saying, we did what you asked, and then just forgetting that there was an economic element because they've addressed a different element. So... Yeah. Well, we've lost our guest like for a moment due to yeah lag or something. During my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to type it into the chat so she can read it when she gets in. You can still get the recording. I always enjoy your doctoral dissertation. Well, then you should come back when I, well, I mean, I'm trying to get a couple people on the show. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say who, but come back for them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to Jerry the other today. thing too is that we have it recorded so she can watch it, you know, <laughs> she has yeah. to. Well, uh, it is it is four fifteen or so, I think. Yeah, so I guess we are past time. Uh, yeah, I don't know how long you guys booked her for, but um, I reset her the Zoom link uh, to see if that would help. Um, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> She's Why don't we honest. talk for about five minutes and see if sure, she might yeah. be trying to rejoin because <clears throat> she might want to continue. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure for one hour or two. So, if he enters, we must a room apologize to the viewers and listeners for technical difficulties. So, so um, I mean, I've done a podcast with her before, and her Wi-Fi sometimes cuts out. So, uh, yeah, give okay. her just a couple minutes. Um, I think she'll jump back on. I think it's just a Wi-Fi connection. Is Hamilton kind of rural? Is great. I think like we can invite no like uh, one one person from like every country. She said her internet died, and she ah, reset okay. the. Uh, yeah, people from other countries would be good to have on. In, yeah. Yeah. In like a I, Iran also had a basic income experiment did it? in one town. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't, see, I knew Canada, but I did not know Iran. Yeah. Uh, what you can tell us about this, Ariel? Uh, I don't Why do you wait till like episode 80 to, to mention this? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, no, Iran, yeah. you know, is kind of like a pariah country to the U.S. So, but uh, let me check. Uh, which one it was. I think it was in Shiraz. Uh, let me double check. I think it's great if we get other countries involved in this chat. Because, you know, uh, as she was saying, there's lots of people in other countries interested in this movement. And if we already have some groundwork, we could actually help other countries get a leg up and or learn from them. And then uh, we become more powerful than the U.S. And then, you know, uh, if they're hearing references mm -hmm. in other countries talking about this and we're already working with them, you know, like, well, we listen, uh, here, uh, here. here's something I want to talk about. If we get to that point, uh, Ariel, I'm going to come back to you in just a minute. Um, why are we not presenting UBI as a solution to what's happening in Hong Kong because they've been protesting for over a year and I believe that they're not successful not because uh, China is not open to it not because the Hong Kongese you know government or the whatever the elite or whatever it's not that it's because their their five um, you know demands are not possible to meet for a government that wants to call themselves sovereign so they're asking for the government to give up sovereignty which they can't right and so they're they're so they're at an impasse. And so if we could like present that as a as a possibility for people in Hong Kong to think about, this is a demand that you should be going for. I feel um, like we need to talk to Macaulay about this. He's got um, a lot of connections in other countries. Seems, seems like oh, uh, we have a member. 
that is from Australia that also has a daughter currently living in Australia. Uh, is that Raz? Rad? Jesse's coming back. Yes, that is Rad. I think I'm back. Rad. Okay. Welcome back. So, 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 Iran. Um, it showed that that uh, it increased how much people worked as opposed to the opposite, what everybody thinks. But still, even even the conservative part of Iran had looked at it negatively that it would make them lazy, even though it proved otherwise. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you know, same old yeah. story everywhere you hear it. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so, hey Jesse, uh, um, I just want to check in with you real quick. Uh, how much time do you have with us today? Um, I can probably do another ten to fifteen minutes. Cool. Oh, okay. Cool. Perfect. Is that cool. So what I was saying, yeah, what I was saying when you dropped off. So. Our legacy media, because it's owned by the same five corporations, does this thing whenever there is a movement in America since the 70s that involves economic demands. And they just kind of edit out the economic demands if they can focus on anything else. And they change the narrative of what like protesters ask for, what movements ask for selectively so that the most important things, the real material needs of people never, ever get met. And that that function of our, yeah, exactly. Occupy. I was at Occupy personally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, they, <laughs> they just edit the narrative here because we don't have the laws that we used to. Uh, uh, I would like to actually jump in on yeah. what uh, Shale just laws. said. And media. Um, this actually goes back to a question that Feiku asked, I believe. Um, and that is, or Faye Downey, sorry. Uh, and that is Black Lives Matter in their policies actually has a demand for a UBI as well. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's a part that's never mentioned. I I honestly think and it's that's because why. money money is like true a uh, uh, power because um you know you know a, a policy change here and there only goes so far, but it doesn't give the power just directly in the most you know, you know, obvious way and in, in the most just clear way. So that's why they try to dance around the money thing, because they say, well, as long as they're dependent on these systems that they have to go through our bureaucracies and kind of kiss our ring to get the money, we keep the power. But if it's just direct, then that's like the direct transfer of power where we don't have these bureaucratic mechanisms to keep people in check. So it's obvious. Well, I mean, okay, so I, I want people to at least practice a visualization from here. Like, um, imagine any movie and be like, okay, if you give $1,000 a month to each of these characters in this movie, how would that change the plot line, right? And literally, that's what we're trying to do with our countries, right? Um, and like most movies are representative of realities that exist already. Okay. And so if you use this kind of like thing of a movie that, you know, uh, even with Kings and Queens, what would happen if all their servants, oh, she left again. Um, but like if all your servants got a thousand dollars a month, like how would that affect the King and Queen? You know, like that's essentially what we're trying to do. And, uh, that's not an easy feat. But you're like, yeah, they don't. How they, would people, they would have to pay people more if they wa still wanted servants. They don't want that. So, you know, that's really well, what we're up against. Here's the thing. Isn't it funny that we've had to have all these pilots, all these tests for UBI to prove our case. But yet 
the, this persistent insistence on doing the things that don't work, i.e., you know, tweaking this, tweaking that, and having means tested this and <laughs> improved means tested that. that. Those were never expected to be subjected to tests, but yet we've got at least 40 plus years of proven epic failure of of those things that we it, it's like the definition of insanity of doing the same thing over and over again but expecting a different result but yet this is the one thing that no we have not yet done on a on a large scale but we've got all these pilot programs that that bear our, that bear it out that show that prove our case well some people don't realize that we all we need is america's two-third majority vote for things like uh, like to bypass some of the presidential stuff. Like I was talking to Angelo and working through some policy ideas and like, you know, we got to be able to take things to Congress and we have to be and or be able to like get two thirds of America's vote for some of these things. And I don't think Americans realize how much uh, like power they have um, as a majority. And if we have the whole globe doing a whole bunch of riots, like we technically could get our two thirds vote, uh, no problem with several different things. I mean, it's a, it's a whole range of things we have to address, but it's not entirely out of our power. Yeah. That's a mechanism that, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize, uh, you can get things, <clears throat> and this is a true democracy. You can actually gather enough signatures to get an agenda onto your state's ballot, and it just requires two-thirds of the states to um, get it passed into law. It actually bypasses uh, Congress and the president um, directly because it is the people officially having spoken. But, I mean, a lot of people don't know even how to, like, set that up, and so we almost have to train people on how to get it on the ballot, you know, like, ugh, stuff like that. But we need it. We need to teach people, but we also need inspiration from other countries sometimes, I think. Or we need to basically to look at, you know, how the First Nations communities, you know, people that, that were written off and their systems dismissed and, you know, the Haudenosaunee, the I mean, is one prime, is just one prime example of that and say, hey, look, you know, um, we got to admit we don't have all the answers. So let's look at what works and let's look to, you know, at, at other people and, and not think that, you know, that we, that we, that we have all the answers because no one person has all the answers. Exactly. And eventually I'm just thinking we need to take the bull by the horns. And unfortunately, like I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that it happens in a non-violent, calm a good way but it's like i think these these protests are peaceful but i think like what's getting to the riots and the arson is that when when is it just taken by the horns and how much is this bull going to like ravage things i mean like i don't know we'll need a few tranquilizer darts something but it's like it's it's like but not just take the bull by the horns i'm not talking about like getting violent i'm talking about like confronting these ubi deniers with the straight facts and the straight stories and then just you know what are they going to come back with their their nonsense 
I, I don't understand because some people don't want to take the bull by the horns. They want to, you know, be nice. But I'm saying that, you know, I don't know what's going to be an eventuality. You, or in the words of Andrew the Yang, we have the data. <laughs> yeah. The data there's stories is and there's data. Like it, it's not an ideological opinion. If if you believe that, if you pull yourself up the bootstraps, that's your opinion. It's an ideology. Yes. Basis in fact. Whereas we know when we have basis in fact and statistics and everything that shows that a basic income works and stories. Yeah. Well, it's like slavery. Well, what what like did they think that slavery was like something that was needed for a healthy functioning society no they wanted no. They, they 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 said oh i'm i'm my skin color is this your skin color is that you're gonna work for me for free and that's the way that god wants it and then if they're trying to give us the same spiel with a ubi that's just the way that god wants it we're gonna say shove it up your ass like sorry i get pissed but like yeah <laughs> no, no totally. you're absolutely right ariel that is exactly what we will say exactly oh. While we still have Jesse for a minute, I would like to um, ask her a little bit about some of these demands that are that I see on there. Uh, defund the police. Okay, so the, these are some demands that are that I see here. We call on the city of Hamilton to ensure that the police are not ticketing home ho houseless people for existing in public. Is that correct? Um, yes. Um, um, can you send me the link to the? I, I I've seen. Oh sure, absolutely. The, the article. I'm just trying to pull it up right now and not moving fast enough. There you go. I hope this is wrote the article. Uh, I'll read a few more while you're getting that up. There's also uh, demanding that they stop uh, surveilling communities and yes. to, to halt the expenditure of tax dollars on high-tech surveillance equipment, um, to halt all purchases with tax dollars of weapons. That's one of my big things, is that if I, I don't want you to be using tear gas, then I don't need to be buying it for you. And if I'm the boss because I'm the people, then I have to take responsibility for not giving you those things, right? Yeah. Um, there's also really interesting things like we demand that the school board refrain from calling the cops on kids. Yeah, um, and that is that is a thing that 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 happens. Like there are police officers that will like work in the schools and work in school boards, um, um, and there is like. Um, like there is a problem with bullying and violence with kids in schools in Hamilton. Um, just even specifically uh, last year, a 13, it was like 13 or 14 year old kid was murdered by a, a, a bully at a school. He was stabbed at, at, in front of his mother. This happened in Hamilton last year. It was horrifying. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, I think schools are again, tying back to the colonialism problem where we've inherited all these problems and we can't even mm -hmm. like talk, think about them clearly because we think of education as the meritocracy, you know, you're going to build your way out of this thing. But in Canada, you've had a history of trying to retrain the Aborigines or the people, the original peoples, the first peoples of your nation to um, a new way of life by re-educating them and taking the children and educate using the education system to teach them a whole different way of life and a different culture. And and that, those were called residential schools and they were systemically horrifying. Um, there was a lot of abuse and violence and, and a lot of children died. It, it's an indoctrination schools. system. It, it, it I mean, was um, like they would, yeah. they would make um, indigenous kids, cut their hair um they were to adapt to a 
Westo, Western Europe, Eurocentric Christian um, ideology to live by. It was not good. Um, the last residential school closed in 1996. So like, like, wow. Like, wow. The yeah. very last residential school in, in Canada closed in 1996. Um, yeah. But wow. yeah, like, countless numbers of kids were, were displaced and, and, um, there's horrifying stories. Um, like there's one story of a child, um, who ran away from a, a residential school in the 1960s and is hundreds of miles away from both civilization, it, let alone his home. Um, and he was found frozen at, uh, next to a train track. Um, he wow, died. That's like the most horrifying story. Yes. Yeah, um, it's like Charlie Wenchak was his name. God. it's it's like so you look at world countries and and it's like you 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 think that like sorry faith it's like I, I just had to say it's like like some parts of first world countries are just as barbaric and sick as like the the worst third world parts that's all i have to See, say you've got to remember that what was what was done to the first nation native american people originally started back in europe between different factions of europeans the very first imperialism you know, okay, it was after the Roman Empire. You had, you know, Western Europe, or you had Britain mostly, um, in having an imperialism against the Irish and against the Slavs in, in the in the Balt in the Balkans. You know, and what was what for generations, you know, people in Western Europe and in Great Britain were acculturated into accepting as normal and the way things are done was brought here to the quote new world which you know <laughs> yeah you're replicating um a, a a system that you know you really have to go all the way back to the roots and look at you know well where how did this all start it's very complicated but people you know how many people have time to deep dive research these histories and a lot of these histories are are not taught in school and they're not taught in schools for a reason <laughs> okay they're not taught in schools for a reason and it's like to, to to get to the knowledge and to learn to to understand where we need to go we need to first understand where we're coming from and that's why you know being able to go back and back and back and and not not just take the you know mainstream you know accepted historians word for things you know i mean if you look at the way uh Many British, you know, uh, writers back in the 18th and 19th century were describing British imperialism, uh, uh, you know, as the way it unfolded and manifested in India. You know, they acted like it was just, you know, something that happened by accident, you know, as if, you know, there was an imperialism, there, that there was an imperialism that just happened without any empire. And nobody ever questioned these narratives. Like, you know, how do you get an imperialism without empire? How do you get... Um, a, a colonialism without empire and what, you know, what, what, whose stories have been suppressed because there's the old saying is that it's, you know, the winner history is, is always told by the winners. And that's true. You know, there's a lot of, well, truth in that. you know, I was thinking just earlier actually about how um, the shaming has kind of flopped uh, to the other side at, finally to some capacity because you know we've essentially had narcissists in control of our lives and they've been shaming us for uh 
whatever they decide to like, you know, the perception is not our perception. Right. And uh, now all the people who've been bullied by essentially all these people are like, no, and they're providing video proof, uh, which is, you know, a narcissist's favorite thing is secrecy. Right. And then, so now we have video and we're like, Hey, by the way, and the narcissist just lied. Here's some proof. Um, and this is the behavior and society is putting their judgment upon them. And like, I don't necessarily think, uh, how we're handling it is ethical in my opinion, but the coin has flipped. We're like, by the way, look what's happening. Look at my side of the story. And, and, and so, uh, I saw like, a uh, image was, uh, uh, it was George Floyd, a mural, and it was painted over. And uh, he was publicly shamed for doing that because they outed him, right? And he publicly apologized and, and you know, said sorry. But, like, that wouldn't have happened had people not, like, called him out on it, right? Um, and so it's it's stuff like that. What you say, Angelo, in the chat? Oh, I said that it was uh, just recently made illegal to film the police. You can actually be arrested and face fines for filming the police over here, which says a lot about how much they fear um, the public actually being able to see what's That's happening. That's a dictatorship. In Tucson, That's Arizona. Crazy. Is that yes. just for your city or is that for a county or for the entire state? How did it work? Yeah. Um. It's statewide, but it's being um, championed by the leaders here in Tucson, here in the city. Wow. So, like, for this, these are things that go silent when you're just looking at, because uh, your state is doing stuff that other states aren't probably aware of, right? And so unless we have people like you telling the rest of us who have, you know, more reach and vote, but even just this show... Uh, we we can't expose this kind of behavior if we are kept silent, right? Uh, so we have to speak up and in numbers. And like, I hate that it's becoming police versus citizens, you know? Um, but also I was reading the article we posted in the chat group and it was all about like, uh, I'm a bastard cop or something like that or all cops are bad, I don't know. But it was like first person account from a police officer being like, yeah, this is the shit. This is how they train us, which is like, fear-based training to groom you to like they start with just watching a bunch of videos of uh people killing cops that's how they train you you just flood them with like everyone wants to kill you what <laughs> like um so it, it actually grooms them into needing to defend themselves we are the enemies yeah you know? they're, they're trained <laughs> to have an us versus them mentality i don't know if it's the same in canada but here in America, yes, many police departments are trained, and it's come out, uh, like the training videos and stuff, that they are trained to have a us-versus-them mentality and view us as lesser because we are quote-unquote criminals. I'm not going to lie. Part of me wants to just go through the training just to see how horrific it is. Like an investigative journalism of sorts. I think we need stuff like that. We need people to feel safe enough to expose that kind of stuff, though, But and that's scary you know so um i'd like to um bring us oh. all together to say goodbye to jesse because mm -hmm. i think we're going to 
uh, need to want to do that. Oh, yeah, we're we're past time. time doing that. Before so. we get, before we have to go, I just want to say, you know, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. I remember just before uh, you came on, I watched one of your videos where you said you had a, you know, you you had a bunch of um, handwritten cards, and they said things like, "If you are a UBI advocate, I would love to talk to you." So I'm so happy we could all talk to you. Um, if you would ever like to do your own Canadian like UBI advocacy podcast, I'd be very happy to help you get set up with that. Uh, no pressure, of course, but if that's the thing you would like to do to meet more UBI advocates, uh, I would do everything I can to help you with that, uh, including setting Funny up the technical Funny you should mention that because I'm working, I'm working on that exact thing right now. Well, good. So, if you need any help with the technical aspect or logistical aspects, you know, we're, we're here for you. I'm an audio technician myself, so whatever. I you can also go on your show. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I would love that. That would be fantastic. Hey, we'll do that then. So that's okay, a good place let's, to leave it. Let's have some follow-up conversations. I look forward to that. Wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for showing up today, Jesse. We had a little scheduling snafu last week, but um, we're so happy to have you back. I'm really <laughs> glad to be back. I'm sorry about the scheduling mix-up. and I don't know. I'm an anxious person and everything, but it, it worked. I, and I'm just I just like to hear Canadians apologize. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so musical. <laughs> well, pitter patter, let's get at her. Okay, there you go. More of that. More of that. <laughs> I should uh, end I, the show by by nationally objectifying you, right? <laughs> thank you for inviting yeah. her, Faye. Did you? Were you the one that connected <laughs> us? Yeah, well, uh, she had connected with me because uh, Scott Santons had actually shared something uh, and was like, hey, talk to this chick. And I was like, okay. She seems and to so be the Canadian fun. Scott Santons, <laughs> so I would think. Is that right? I, I think it might be the Canadian Scott Santons. Wow. That's high honors from us. <laughs> and and uh, Jeremy, as always, uh, you did a great job producing and everything. Um, and I just want to uh, say goodbye to everyone. So do you guys want to still do your Twitter again before we leave so people can find Jesse, for example? Jesse, you want to start with uh, how do people find you? Yeah, so um, the, the the social media is called Humans of Basic Income. Um, there is a website coming, and it will be humansofbasicincome.com whenever it's done. Um, but the, like, you can also find me. My Twitter handle is at humansbasic, um, just one word. Um, so yeah, follow me there. I'm always sharing everything, basic income. So yeah, I talk about these days. Same here. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like all of us. Yeah. (laughs) I'm, I'm at, I'm at Palestine math. Once again, I'm fake coup and the other Faye is right here with me. (laughs) Yeah. What's your Twitter Uh, Faye? Tisdoney, T-I-S-D-O-N-E-Y. Very nice. Um, how about you, Jacqueline? How do people find you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Jacqueline Homan, all one word, J-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-H-O-M-A-N. You could find me all over the place, actually. Google me. I'm like horse shit. I get all over. Uh, how about you, Jeremy? Are you ready to give us a last? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jeremy Sammons one, and that is J E R E M Y S A M M O N S and the number one. Okay, and Ariel. Yeah, I think I said I'm at Ariel Lamada. That's uh, at A R I E L S underscore A R M A D A. Revolutionary thinking on YouTube, and don't forget 
Ariels underscore Ariels on uh, Instagram. So that's A R I E L S underscore A E R I A L S. Come check it out for awesome drone photos. All right. And so glad to see you were able to make it for a while, Angelo. Thank you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hellion Hellfire. I'd also like to thank our guest again for coming on the show. I hope that she will return in the future. Would you like to pick her brains again um, for the, you know, testify for Congress? You guys, you want to get um, your um, website out for everyone? Uh, yes, our website is testifyforubi.com. You can also find us on Twitter at testifyforubi. Okay, and take it away, Shale, our our, our ultimate you, producer Faye. that, that does all the stuff well behind the scenes. I do a thing here or there. I do a couple couple things. Um, yeah, thank you again. Everyone has said it for me. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Keep fighting the good fight. Stay safe. Take care of each other. Don't get sick. And uh, we will be back with more basic income advocacy tomorrow. So, goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. 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 See you next time. <laughs>